I think life can kind of be like a card game sometimes. You know, you're dealt a hand that you'd rather not have been, or maybe that isn't in your favor. And we can easily get caught up in that. You know, the wrong of it. Why me? Now what? Sort of thing. But as the Greek philosopher Epictetus once said, it's not what happens to you, but how you react that matters. And this couple today, Rose Padilla and Chad Horton, well, when you hear this story about what happened to their retirement plan, years in the making, ripped away from them, in fact, they had to pay to get away, you'd understand if they came out of it bitter, reserved, sort of guarded, and then going right back to what they did before to try and regain what they lost. But they didn't do that. Instead, when things sort of fell apart for them, they took stock and decided there was another adventure they wanted to chase down. And that in today's digital world, they could do that and make money on the road. Coming up, we're going to hear the story about what happened to them, how they dealt with it, and what it's like to do what they're doing, live on the road. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. It's wind pressure that powers the Moto Breeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. My name is Rose Padilla. I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And what do I do? Uh, travel around with my husband and get into trouble on a motorcycle. My name is Chad Horton. I am originally from Los Angeles, California, and I am an official moto hobo. Chad, Rose, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, Jim. I, I like the moto hobo thing. That That's kind of cool. What is it? <laughs> well, uh, I, I know that you've discouraged people from using the term homeless in the past. So we are essentially houseless. We live on the motorcycle and we really don't have a schedule or a route. So we just kind of bum around. Um, so I guess we're moto hobos. Yeah, right. we see something shiny and then we go toward it. <laughs> That's <laughs> nice to be able to do that. So what's the purpose of what you're doing? That's a good question. I'm not really sure we have a purpose beyond just trying to get out and see as much of this world as possible. Wow. That's, that's a, a great position to be in. And of course, anyone who's listening to this is going to say, well, how can they afford to do that? That's honestly the number one question we always get. Um, kind of through a, I mean, it's, 
the whole thing's been by accident, to be honest with you. Uh, purchasing a motorcycle, I purchased an Africa Twin in 2018 in order to ride down to Patagonia to uh, take over a restaurant in a brewery that I had down there that I had established in 2006 down in uh, Puerto Natales, Chile, which is, I'm sure as many people know, the gateway city to Torres del Paine. And um, once we arrived in Puerto Natales, it didn't take long for us to realize that our business partners of many, many years had been ripping us off. Mm -hmm. And that resulted in a number of lawsuits, which kind of coincided with COVID, as well as social unrest down in Chile in 2019. And unfortunately, that led some years later to us having to liquidate all of our assets in the country and kind of flee with the shirts on our backs. And beyond that, we didn't really have anywhere to go or anything to do because we had pretty much put all of our eggs in that basket. Yeah, we did. And we just decided to jump on the bike, which we actually had to sneak out of the country <laughs> and just take our time winding our way back up through the South American continent until we figured out what's next. Right. And then when you run out of money, then you have to go home, but well, now we're going to run to this home and house thing. <laughs> you, you don't have a house to go back to, but you're going to have to go back somewhere and generate an income, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's... Uh, we have the advantage of having a laptop, which is good. Um, there's so many uh, opportunities now to just sort of do um, a job differently, a career differently, uh, and just do it on the go. As long as you have a, a decent internet connection and electricity, then normally you can you can make do. And I mean, we camp a lot. We, we don't like, it isn't as though we are um, out there looking for, you know, these high-end resorts or anything like that. I think for the most part, what we like to do is um, actually be uh, in the mix with everything. Like we were just in the salt flats in Uyuni and we camped there uh, among the ruins on one of the islands. And that doesn't cost anything. You know, you buy some bread and cheese in town and then you go and you camp and you, you enjoy yourself. And that's, I think, uh, it's helpful in terms of saving money. Mm -hmm. It's quite an amazing time we're living in right now, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's a lot that isn't great, I think, about the, the internet and technology. But one thing I think we're seeing mm -hmm. more and more that's so amazing is the fact that just the way you, you even responded there, that you totally see and are finding ways to make money with your computer on the road. I mean, it's, it's not even really something to panic about anymore. I definitely don't panic. Um, and I don't really have, you know, a set, um, I think, expectation before we get somewhere. It's sort of like it all just unfolds and develops. And I don't know, we just end up having a really good time. So, yeah, I think that was probably one of the um, best things to come out of COVID was that people started to realize that, you know, you could work remotely. Uh, and that was really kind of that helped a lot of digital nomads be able to kind of realize this lifelong dream of getting from behind the computer out of the cubicle and working from the road. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's really opened things up and it changed, changed the way that we live, you know, for, or at least for some people anyway, for, as far mm -hmm. as riding. So, so you've got one bike, you're riding two up Rose, you're on the back. Do you have a, a, a license to ride a motorcycle or are you not a rider? I do. Yes. And you in do. fact, um, in a way, I've been sort of uh, looking for a motorcycle for myself. Um, I know Honda just put out, um, what was it, the 
what is it, babe? It was a CRF 300L with a lower C height. Yeah, I'm really short. I'm only five foot three inches. So I have to um, find a bike that's appropriate for not only me, but for the terrain that we like to ride. So um, that's a huge goal of mine is to get back on a bike. Um, And it, you know, it'll happen. It's it's definitely going to happen. But for now, yes, I'm on the back. (laughs) So you're you're on the back. Well, I mean, that's a great setup, obviously, because you could ride the bike. You could ride the Africa Twin that you guys are riding as well. You know, if anything happens with Chad not being able to ride, you can ride that. Maybe with a set of stilts and a step stool. <laughs> well, well does, hey, does that have anything? Okay, so there's the height thing. I, I get that. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who are short who ride big yeah, bikes. I mean, it might come down to technique, but I think in the end, it's like I literally just don't have the strength or the body uh, weight to even, you know, maneuver the bike. And especially the way that we have it set up. I mean, we obviously live on the bike. We have our camping gear, we have tools, we have fuel, we have water, we have food. Um, it's just, it's heavy. It's there. It, yeah. <laughs> Rose is petite and it's a lot of bike to handle. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I am saying that there's a lot of people out there who are, who are short, um, vertically challenged and vertically challenged. Some, yeah, but yeah. just, just don't church it up for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and many of them are, are like amazing riders, excellent riders, you know, Yeah. but, but I, I, I agree with you. It's like, I've often said this, we even did an episode of this one time uh, a long years back, I think now, but is it easier to ride if you're taller? And I absolutely think so. I mean, it's get on mm. a tiny bike and ride a tiny bike, no matter what your size, get a, exactly. on a bike that's tiny for you and see how easy it is to maneuver. Right. I mean, there's absolutely. a definite advantage. Mm. Oh, right. yeah. And I mean, when I'm solo, um, I've got a CB500X that's back in Los Angeles that I actually bought for Rose to to create a, a Africa twin for her. And <laughs> I ended up riding that up to um, to the Arctic. And solo, I actually enjoy the 500X a lot more than I do the Africa twin because mm-hmm. it's so much lower to the ground. It's got a lower center of gravity. It's a lot easier to handle. Uh, and it's just, it's fun. Um, whereas the Africa Twins sometimes, especially off-road, can it, it can be a bit much. Yeah, the 500X, uh, though, not for two-up, I'm assuming. And and by the way, everyone I've spoke with, with that has one of those bikes absolutely loves them. They're great little bikes. Uh, I mean, obviously, with any Honda, you have to upgrade the suspension. So I put some Rally Raid suspension on that. Uh, but, you know, once you get the suspension set up, yeah, for just one-up solo traveling, it is an incredibly capable bike. But Rose, I'm curious about you riding this, yes. the Africa Twin, or, or, the, or at least the, the idea of you riding the Africa Twin. Does it have anything to do with the load as well that you guys have? And, and, and I want to ask you about the load. Is your load, I mean, you guys see bikes out there. You guys see all kinds of people. You're riding, mm-hmm. meeting. Is your load heavy? I think because we, uh, we camp and we have everything um, that you need in terms of you know, repairing the bike, we have extra parts, we have all kinds of things because we're off road so much. Um, we've had to use the things that we bring. So yeah, we do have, I think, a much heavier load than a lot of people who are just doing like, oh, we're going to go for a month and we're going to hit these places and we're going to stay here. and We're going to do this. You know, we are basically ready to set up camp anywhere and everywhere. Um, and I, yeah, it's definitely, it, it, it plays into you know, my ability or disability in terms of being able to ride the Africa twin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we've had, I mean, I've had a lot of conversation. I mean, you know, uh, Tim and Marissa, no tear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tim and I have had conversations <laughs> regarding the fact that we're so completely overloaded. 
And it is because they travel much in the same way we do. Um, we're very self-sufficient and we like to travel to remote places off-road, which means we have to have two or three days worth of fuel. We have to have two or three days worth of food. Um, and there's no AAA. Uh, if you get a flat tire or you know something goes wrong with the bike, you got to be able to get yourself out because especially here in the Andes, we might be out there for two or three days and we won't see another human being. Exactly. Um, and a lot of people that I have spoken to that have kind of laughed at our load or criticized the load, you know, I'll, I'll have a conversation with them. And I say, okay, well, you know, are you guys camping? And they say, no, we're, we're staying in hostels. I was like, okay, so you don't have to carry a tent. You don't have your sleeping bags, pads. I was like, if you're staying at hostels, you're probably not cooking for yourself, right? They're like, no, we eat out. And so once you kind of start to break down the differences in, you know, the, the style of travel, uh, yeah. it becomes fairly obvious. Yeah, which is all good. I mean, whatever style you want to, whatever you want to do is is all good for you. But we just kind of, uh, we like to have options when we're riding as well, um, just to be able to be out there longer, um, to be able to get further, see more, do more, camp more. Um, but yeah, whatever, you know, anyone else is into, uh, good on them. Mm, yeah, it's very difficult to get the kit down very small when you're completely living off the bike, like you said, in camping and all of these things that you're saying. And then if you decide to have any sort of luxury at all, I mean, if you're carrying a, a stool or a chair or anything, all these mm. things have this incredible way of adding up. I, I swear when you, when you look at them separately, they don't seem like they're much, but when you start to load everything into a pack, mm -hmm. somehow <laughs> it just ends up much bigger than what it ought to be. And yeah. we continue to get rid of things like regularly it's just, it's like you modify and you, you have to ask yourself those crucial questions, whether it is like something you really need, you know, and if it's not, then you just get rid of it and it gives you more um, options, more freedom. Yeah. Roses down to one sock. Yeah. <laughs> well, you gotta. But it's yeah. a good sock. <laughs> and, and it has a double use because you can use it on the left or the right. And that's, you know, one that's of the right. 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 off. It's also a mitten, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So do you have any idea what, what you, your load weighs? No, <laughs> no, I don't, don't. want to know. I don't do think we want to know. Yeah, that's yeah I, I don't want to know. <laughs> that's like because you don't want to have to answer that question when somebody says, how much weight do you have on there? I don't know. Yeah, I know. and we get it all the time. People always ask, and that's that's always the answer. So I have no idea. I don't want to know. We should just come up with a number like that really is like, Yeah, Whoa. that's really out there. 600, 600 kilos. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the nice thing is, Rose, if you do get a bike, then that's going to divide that up and probably get it to be a little bit more manageable. Oh, yeah, wouldn't that be nice for please. Chad? <laughs> please. <laughs> and then the more I eat, the more I weigh, and it's just, it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part yep. of the vicious circle. How long have you been yeah, riding exactly. for, Rose? Um, when did I get my license? Um, I, I actually rode dirt bikes um, for a while, uh, long before I got my, my license to ride. Um, but I guess I've had my license now for about eight years. I see. And dirt bikes, like as in like you were racing or, or just riding around? No, 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 no. Um, just out there just for fun. No, oh, no racing. Yeah. But you've got some skills yeah. then. I mean, if you're riding a dirt bike and you go to a street bike, you, you're definitely coming in with, with more skills than the average rider. You would hope so. I don't know. <laughs> it's all going to be basically like, um, I think again, learning on the job. Cause it's just, it's, it's not the same. I, I think that, you know, I do come with a bit of experience, but no, I need to learn so much more. And I really want to. So I, yeah, again, I know it'll happen. How about you, Chad? We were initially, well, I, I mean, we both started kind of late in life. I didn't throw my leg over a bike until I was 30. Um, but 
as soon as I started riding, I immediately started racing. And so that helped out a lot. And then buying the adventure bike, it was, it was never really part of the plan. It was ne- never anything I intended on doing, but I traveled a lot as, as a kid, um, as a young man, I guess you would say. I was, you know, I kind of did the, the van life and the overlanding thing before they called it van life or overlanding. Um, they just called me a hippie because I used to drive around the country in my land cruiser and, and uh, get lost as much as possible. And then when I transitioned into motorcycles, it was just the perfect combination of, of traveling and being able to get out there as far as possible. So the vagabond thing is not new to you. Not at all. No. Well, okay, but let me be clear. He's always worked. He's always at a job. It's not like he has, you know, like the dirty feet. And so he's, you're de- he's not a. She's you, defending uh, you. Like, you realize that. I Chad. know. That's, I know. That's, that's a good nice. woman right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, yeah, no, the, the, you mentioned that you've been, you've been sort of traveling around. You're, you, I think it was high school, wasn't it? That you started after high school or something. You, you, you set off on an adventure. I immediately, I mean, in high school, I had a 73 Westphalia. And I was an avid caver and rock climber at the time. And so every long weekend I had from high school, I would take off and I would disappear in the mountains. And then I actually didn't even end up attending my own high school graduation. Uh, I bought an old 84 Chevy crew cab dually and threw a, a Lance camper on the back. And I took off caving across the country when I was 18 years old. Mm. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. and. I mean, it's it's funny when you talk about like, well, what are you going to do when the money runs out or where are you guys going to go? Um, I've kind of done this my entire life. And I always made working part of the travel. I fished in Alaska for a couple of years. Um, I worked for the Conservation Corps for a couple of years, running chainsaw and fighting wildland fires. And so I've always just kind of bummed around from one adventure to the next, uh, trying to earn money along the way. And so this is well within my comfort zone. And, you know, luckily I found Rose, who is more than willing to come along for the ride. So, (laughs) Is that, Rose, are you just along for the ride? Uh, You know, I think at first it sort of um, looked that way. And I kind of feel like, whoa, maybe I was um, just riding on Chad's coattails. But I think what has happened is I've learned so much from his experience that now, especially like what we were talking about, how I want to have my own bike, I want to have my own way of getting around so that I don't necessarily seem like I'm just along for the ride. Mm. You know, there's a a big level of independence that I strive for. Um, For now, it's just been like, I sit in the back and I literally watch everything he does. Because I know that soon enough, I'm going to have to be doing those very same things. So when we're in these uh, really congested cities, uh, I see how he manages um, all of the, just the chaos. And then when we're off road, I see what he does there. Uh, when he's stressed, I see how he manages his stress. When we're having a good time, you know, I can tell he's light, everything's cool. Uh, so I've I've just been taking all of this in, knowing that it's there and I've cataloged it. It's, it's, it's going to be used soon. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. And that's why I said it. I mean, like, I know you're not just along for the ride. It's it's easy to say that. Which I isn't this. a bad thing if I was. I mean, no, I, I guess no. not. But I mean, you're still doing all of the things that we do in life. I mean, all the things that it, when you're together as a couple, you tend to work together. You sort of take on your own roles, which I'm sure you guys have. Mm. 
yeah, we have our strengths, I think, and and we play to those, and and we definitely work as a partnership. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> you have to, or else you, we'd end up killing each other. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it just wouldn't work at all. Hey, you mentioned no, not that. At all. You mentioned, you, you know, you're always working it and you're doing several things, but you, you sort of threw in there about this, this thing that you had set up, this business you had set up. How did you get into setting up a business? Just talk about that a little bit. Are you talking about the restaurant and the brewery that yeah. we had in South America? Um, I originally went to uh, Patagonia in 2004 as a rock climber and immediately fell in love. And especially on the, you know, as you know, Patagonia is divided between Argentina and Chile. Um, the Chilean side of Patagonia is very underdeveloped, or at least it was at the time, in terms of uh, tourist infrastructure. And I just really saw an opportunity. Uh, I looked at all the things they did not have there and basically just kind of copied and pasted a business that worked in California, which was craft beer and like a traditional style American pub. And down in Southern Patagonia on the Chilean side of the border, they had never seen anything like that before. And so it was an instant hit. And um, I spent the next close to 20 years uh, traveling back and forth between Los Angeles and Chile, uh, you know, living down there sporadically. And um, yeah, it was just, it was kind of lightning in a bottle. Uh, It was just right place, right time. And after I was a general contractor in Los Angeles for 20 years, and after I left that job, uh, we went down to Chile with the intent on kind of making that our life. But unfortunately, things kind of went tits up on us. Yeah, so. that's, uh, that's not good. I mean, that's it's, it's a shame what happened. Now, exactly what happened? You, you went down there, so you'd left it, I guess, for a while. You had a friend managing it for you. Then you ended up. I going- had a couple. I had two Chilean partners. And uh, what ended up happening after an extended um, time away, and that was just based on life circumstances, I came back to discover that essentially um, they had been cooking the books. Mm. Uh, And I used to work for Chad um, doing his books. And so whenever we went down, it was kind of like um, natural for me to look through and try to make sense of what what the black was, what the red was. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately we found out a lot of things that we wish were not true. Yeah. So we kind of ended up staging a hostile takeover and lawyering up. And then, like I said, unfortunately COVID happened and we had spent one winter under a very strict military quarantine in Patagonia. Mm-hmm. I mean, not only were we dealing with uh, attorneys and uh, our ex-business partners who obviously did not take the the hostile takeover lying down. Uh, they tried to do everything they could to kind of usurp uh, our command of the company. But COVID hit, and then we had a whole lot of social unrest hit at the same time in Chile, which uh-huh. actually resulted in us getting tear gassed in the restaurant <laughs> one night by the military. Yes. Why, why would um, they do that? And there was a pro. We were right on the main square, the Plaza de Armas in town, and there was a major protest outside. And when the military tried to disperse everybody, a lot of people took shelter in the in the restaurant. And apparently, they just decided that lobbing a canister of tear gas in our front door would be a good idea, which mm. I didn't particularly appreciate. Um, but yeah, so there was there were a lot of moving parts, and after. 
spending one winter under a strict military quarantine in Patagonia, we decided we didn't want to do that again. And so when the next winter rolled around and things hadn't eased up uh, in terms of the quarantine, uh, Jim, it was so bad that you were only permitted to leave your house twice a week for two hours at a time. And the only way you could do so was to go online and obtain a permit. And there were military checkpoints. So, I mean, we were basically just, you know, we were getting cabin <clears throat> fever, which is actually why we started doing the YouTube thing, was right. just to try to maintain our sanity. But after the first winter of quarantine, we decided we were going to go back to California. And as soon as we did that, everything completely went off the rails. Our attorneys quit. Um, and uh, everything with the lawsuits just went belly up and we essentially ended up losing everything. Why would your attorneys quit? What happened there? <sighs> um, one of my business partners, unfortunately, was quite influential and uh, worked for, uh, they were managing a major resort for one of the richest people in Chile who was very, very influential and was able to get her a... Um, a crack legal team from Santiago. Mm. And uh, I mean, there were a lot of issues involved. It was supposed to be a public option. There wasn't. Um, we did not have home court advantage. Let's just put it that way. Right. And especially once we had left the country, um, it was just basically open season. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. It, and it got to the point where we actually owned land down in Patagonia. And uh, it got to the point where one of the judges actually uh, tried to seize our property and sell it off at auction, which had absolutely nothing to do with um, what was happening with the business. So when we left the country, we literally uh, liquidated everything as quickly as we could and kind of fled with, you know, the shirts on our backs and even had to sneak the motorcycle out of the country because they, they didn't want us to take that. <laughs> now, is that because you're running from the, the government at that point or is that because of COVID? No, that was because we were, we were just trying to get out of the country with whatever we could before they took it. Oh, I see. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the government as much as it was just kind of a, uh, a bought and paid for judicial system. Mm -hmm. And the, the problem with the motorcycle was we had to import the motorcycle because when we were living down there, we weren't tourists. We had our Chilean residency and I could not have a TIP on a foreign motorcycle as a resident. And so we had to import the motorcycle into the zone of Franca down there, the free zone, the duty free zone, excuse me. Once we returned to Chile, we had left the motorcycle there. And once we'd returned after COVID, we were no longer Chilean residents. We were now tourists. And they would not let me leave the duty-free zone with the Chilean motorcycle as a tourist. Uh, and so we kind of had to sneak the bike out of the country and slap the California plate back on it. <laughs> so how do you smuggle a bike out of the country? Right, Just so, others, so you can word. help others with yeah. this. A smuggle. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were using a different word. I mean, let's just call it what it is. <laughs> take just a quick break. I have two things that I want to tell you about. Stay with us. We've got a lot more fun coming up when we come back. You know what it's like when you stub your toe, especially if it's a bad one. Man, that can cripple you up for days. 
And I think that's indicative of just how important our feet are to us. And I mean, that's kind of goes without saying. I mean, try picking up your bike with one bad foot. Take good care of your feet. Wear proper riding boots. And when it comes to keeping your feet warm and comfortable, use Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's Possum Socks are made of merino wool and a possum fur blend that are designed specifically for motorcycle riding, just for us riders. Now that blend, the possum fur and the merino wool, that makes not only the best cold weather sock that I've ever tried, bar none, but those natural fibers have lanolins in them that resist bacteria, and bacteria is what makes your feet stink with normal socks. Pearly's Possum Socks, in my experience, after, let's just say some days of use, they just don't stink. It's as simple as that. Those natural fibers, they also wick away moisture from your skin. They're thick, they're super cozy, and in fact, I wear them all year round because they work perfectly in my riding boots in the summertime. They help prevent chafing, they keep my feet comfortable, they add extra cushion to my feet as well. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is the website. By the way, they're owned and operated by riders just like us, active riders that are out there exploring and pushing the limits on adventure bikes. I think we're really lucky to have someone making socks just for us. I think that's pretty cool. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is the website. And it's actually, Pearly's Possum Socks is the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio. That's my doing because I absolutely love these things. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. It takes a tremendous amount of R&D to get a product just right. And then it takes tight manufacturing controls to build it to perfection. On top of that, you need a company that has history, that's been through the up and downs of the industry, that's learned what it takes to survive and stand behind a product. When it comes to foot pegs, that company is IMS Products. Since 1976, IMS has been making motorcycle parts. In fact, much of that for the racing circuit, and you know how demanding riders are when they're racers, Racers can't afford to give a failed product a second chance. It has to be perfect the first time. IMS Products makes a full line of motorcycle foot pegs to fit your bike no matter your riding style. The ADV-1 and the ADV-2 pegs are very large platforms designed for riders that want comfort on the long stretches of the road, but also love a spirited ride down fire roads. Or if you're into the more technical stuff, perhaps the core series with the double tooth design, which is easier on the, the boot sole or even the Bigfoot peg, which has the new sprocket tooth design. All of these pegs are made in the USA, all made with 17.4 cast certified stainless steel, all warranted for life. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. What we ended up doing, um, because where we are in uh, southern Chilena, Patagonia, southern Patagonia is to mainland Chile what Alaska is to the lower 48 states. Mm. Um, in order to drive there, we have to go to Argentina. The only other way to get there is to fly or by ferry. Um, so very similar to, you know, if you want to drive to Alaska from, or if you want to get to Alaska from California, you either have to go through Canada or you have to fly there. So as a result, we were allowed to cross back and forth between Chile and Argentina with the motorcycle. 
we just weren't allowed to leave like this, this strict zone without a permit that they call a passivante, which they would not issue to us because we were tourists. Mm -hmm. So we legally crossed into Argentina and then we rode to Buenos Aires and we took a ferry from Buenos Aires to Uruguay. And while we were on the ferry, we switched the license plates <laughs> and we entered Uruguay uh, on a TIP from California. Yes. And that's how you smuggle a motorcycle out of the country. Yes. Wow, that's good. That's good information. Yeah. yeah. It's the how-to. And the problem was we had a the permit, the TIP between Chile and Argentina is a special permit. Um, it is unique to Chilean vehicles entering Argentina. And we actually had a hard time leaving Buenos Aires. They were asking mm -hmm. us a lot of questions. They wanted to know what we were doing, why we were going there. Um, and I was a bit nervous. And so once we got on the ferry to Uruguay and once we got into Uruguay and the customs agent actually gave us a TIP for the California plate, I was very relieved. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, smuggling, it does make people nervous. There's no doubt about it. That's, <laughs> that's, and, and have you added that to your list of things you've done in life? Because I mean, you've done so many things. I mean, you, now you're, you've got smuggling in there as well. Yeah, well, I think that was already on the resume, but oh. <laughs> well, that's another story. It's called current smuggling. Yeah, but the bike's just harder to hide. Right. <laughs> so did you end up losing everything from this business that you worked so hard? Because I mean, it was, it was like you, you mentioned, it was a, a bar and restaurant, but it was also a brewery, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, not only did we lose it, but we paid to lose it. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That was the painful thing was, and actually the courts had kind of imposed a bunch of fees on us that, um, uh, they just kind of made up as they went along. And I think it's because they realized that we did have these assets. We did have this land in Chile. And that's actually why they seized the property. They seized the property to prevent us from selling it before we paid them for quote unquote fees, mm. uh, which, you know, unfortunately ended up amounting to about 50,000 US dollars. Wow. So, um, which was, you know, a good chunk of what the property was actually worth. Right. But, you know, it was either that or, or lose everything. So essentially, in terms of the business, yeah, we lost everything. But there was still some value left in the land that we were able to, uh, able to salvage after we paid the courts off. Mm. So you, and have you sold that off? Are you sort of done with the whole thing now? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're not going back to Chile. We sold that off. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we couldn't. I don't think we could go back to Chile right now if we wanted to. Well, not with the bike. Not with the motorcycle. We could get in <laughs> we and get back out. Oh, yeah, we right. could get yeah, in. Because as soon as they run the VIN number, they're going to see, hey, that's... Yeah, uh, and they would confiscate it, yeah. yeah. That's, um, I, I guess, unfortunate for you. Yeah, it's all part of the story, I guess. Yeah, so then Chad would end up on the back of my bike. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's if he didn't end up in jail for, the, for it or something like that. I'm not doing that. I'm not riding on the back of anybody's bike. <laughs> jail he'll do, well, but he's on not going to ride on the second. back of anyone. Hang on a second, Chad. So it's, so it's okay for Rose to ride on the back of your bike? Oh, I get it. No, no. Oh, boy. Like it was... <laughs> <laughs> she, she's uh, actually, it, it was funny. We were in, where were we? We were in uh, Argentina and uh, we were going to go to Salinas Grandes, which is like the third largest salt flat uh, in South America. And we had to go with a guide. You can only go on the salt flat with a guide. And the guide um, was worried because in order to get to the salt flat, we had to ride through a bunch of sandy terrain. And he wanted Rose to get on the back of his bike. <laughs> to ride with him. And Rose is like, nope, not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'll stick to the tried and true. <laughs> right. This, this whole thing with your business, 
that's that's what put you guys on the road? More or less, yeah. Yeah, actually. So yeah, I guess we have that to thank for what we're doing right now. Because I guess if not, we would be there at the restaurant probably trying to... Yeah, we'd, we'd still probably be in Southern Chile right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of, that was the exit strategy. And it was like, you know, we, we had, you know, luckily we still had some money left from the sale of the property and we didn't have anywhere else to be. So here we are. We're in the middle of Bolivia right now. So here we are. <laughs> right. And we, and we should point out that you're staying, what, what were you at, at a, a B&B or something? Uh, we're in a uh, hospedaje, which is kind of like a family run. It's like, kind of like an Airbnb. Yeah. Like a little bed and breakfast. Yeah. Like, like a, like a bed and breakfast. And, I just uh, thought we should point yeah. that out because it sounded like somebody was getting killed a little while ago and then there's a bell go off or maybe it was like a, a cat sound, oh, but no. it was, it was probably a little kid. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. We're huddled over the laptop, trying not to have any of the um, <laughs> other noises kind of infiltrate. So yeah, we're, we apologize for right, that. Right. No, it's, it's good to know where you are and, and you're traveling right now. I mean, you've sort of stopped out to talk to me. Yeah. We are currently in Santa Cruz de la Sierra, uh, which is kind of in the center of Bolivia. Uh, it is at the, what is considered to be the elbow of the Andes, right where the Andean foothills collide with the Amazon basin. So it's a very interesting, interesting area. And Santa Cruz is actually the largest city in Bolivia, mm. um, which is amazing because most people haven't even heard of Santa Cruz. Right, Bolivia. I hadn't. You're not really looking for anything in particular, you said, when, when you're traveling. So is that how you end up in a place like this? You're, you're just wandering around? I think it's kind of a um, a combination of things. It, what are the riding conditions? You know, if it's asphalt, completely asphalt, we generally uh, say no. Um, Chad loves him a um, a good ruin. You know, a good um, what, what do you say? Like the the ancient ruins that we find. Um, we generally love to uh, be able to kind of get off the beaten path, and we, uh, you know, Chad is very good at looking at maps. He understands um, sort of like a challenging route and he does a lot of research um, in terms of like other writers, what other writers have done, what, you know, is suggested like in terms of like what it is that we like, where we can camp, that sort of thing. Um, and we just kind of get out there and, and then go from there. Yeah, we hadn't actually intended on coming to this part of Bolivia. Um, it was something that literally I saw. We were heading to La Paz and the, the death road a few days ago. And then I was actually on Facebook on one of the Overland groups, and there was another writer in Bolivia asking for advice on a route. And I read some of the responses and sounded good. So we just kind of detoured and came over here. And uh, yeah, and we're going to take another detour pretty much over to the Brazilian border uh, through the Amazon to check out some old uh, Jesuit ruins. Uh, there's some of the only uh, Jesuit uh, cathedrals that are left in all of South America um, that weren't destroyed by the Spanish after they were expelled from the continent. So, um, yeah, just and uh, we literally made that decision this morning. So. <laughs> <laughs> and is this all just sort of you You stumble and bumble along it? You know, no matter where you find something interesting, you'll sort of swing around and head in that direction? Yeah, to an extent. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, we, uh, if you looked at our route on a map, it would make absolutely no sense whatsoever because we, <laughs> we keep crisscrossing the continent. Uh, we're definitely not going from point A to point B. Well, and then also Chad has this aversion to riding the same road twice. So if we go in one direction, we have to come out in a different direction, <laughs> no, no matter the cost. <laughs> 
You, I don't mean monetarily. <laughs> some of what you've done, you've, you've written to the, the southernmost point. You, you went to Tierra del Fuego. But you also right. you also have done some other things. You, you went down some some dead-end roads just for the sake of reaching a point. Yeah. Uh, like Rose mentioned, we kind of like to get off the beaten track. And I love, I mean, the Andes are incredible. Uh, the ability to really get out there and get lost um, on the Antiplano and, and some areas that just people don't go. Um, and I mean, you can literally get off a major highway, uh, here in the Andes and travel, you know, 30 kilometers in any given direction and you won't see anybody for days. Uh, and it's just, a lot of it is just an absolutely, you feel like you're on the, on Mars. You really do. You feel like you're on a different planet. Um, and the high altitude also lends itself to that. Yeah, the the inability to, <laughs> to breathe, breathe. <laughs> the hypoxia helps. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, no, I mean the the Andes are just incredible like that, and it's just amazing because it's just it's such a densely populated area, but all the population central uh, centers are centralized. You know, they're all very they're all very dense, um, and so you don't really have to go far off the beaten track to just get out in the middle of nowhere, and that's really what we enjoy. Um, you know, we like to go look for mummies, you know, we like to go for, you know, geysers and, and Rose loves her a flamingo. So we'll go chase (laughs) flamingos for a while. It's just, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's just, um, that's kind of, that's kind of what floats my boat is just, you know, really getting away from people and kind of, uh, checking out. You know, we'll, we'll see just a road that goes off in the distance and we'll go check it out, see where it goes. Yeah, but we love people too. And we love like uh, trying new foods, all of that sort of stuff. So it's not like we ha- we are, um, you know, trying to stay away from the people. But what's Coletta Maria? Coletta Maria? That's it. Coletta Maria. That's interesting that you would ask that. Um, so uh, like we were saying earlier, Patagonia split between Chile and Argentina. And so is the island of Tierra del Fuego. And a lot of people, when they want to get to the southernmost city in the world, obviously everybody goes to Ushuaia. But hardly anybody ever explores the Chilean side of Tierra del Fuego. Um, Very sparsely populated. Uh, Once you get past a certain point, I mean, there's only one gas station on the southern part of the the southern half of the island. And if you want to go down and back, uh, you better pack extra gas. But Coleta Maria is the end of the road on the Chilean side of Tierra del Fuego. Uh, so it's kind of like the Chilean Ushuaia, except for there's nothing there. There's no Hard Rock Cafe. There's no um, parties. There's no parties. Well, you have to bring the party, so <laughs> there could be. And there's actually another road that goes down to Undgaya Bay um that isn't officially on the maps yet they've been trying to construct it since i believe the the early 90s but the plan was to connect undagaya bay to ushuaia via a ferry and this is a road that they've been trying unsuccessfully unsuccessfully to complete for decades and uh you can actually go past coleta maria which is the end of the road to the unofficial end of the road on tierra del fuego on the chilean side Mm. um and I encourage a lot of people to explore the Chilean side of Tierra del Fuego because it is very remote and it's just stunningly beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, just absolutely amazing. So that's what you get by going to those places is, is the beauty of what you're seeing. The beauty, the solitude, 
Um, yeah, I mean, as much as I hate to say it, you know, there's there's a little bit of bragging rights involved as well. Well, that's what I was wondering. Is it is it like an accomplishment? Because I mean, that's a destination that is the southernmost that many people don't go to. Absolutely. I mean, you know, once we hit Ushuaia, um, I kind of had the distinction of having ridden from, you know, both northern parts of the Arctic, which is basically Dead Horse and Tuck uh, on the Dalton and the Dempster. Um, so I went to the Arctic in both the United States and Canada. And I also went to the end of the road on Tierra del Fuego in both Chile and Argentina. So, yeah, it was a little bit of a feather in my cap, I felt. Not that anybody else cares, but... I thought it was kind of cool. Well, no, but I mean, whenever we get feedback from uh, various uh, viewers, they always say that they appreciate being able to see the places that they probably will never be able to go to. So we're happy to to oblige. Yeah, that that is, you know, something that's pretty cool about doing videos and showing the places that you go to is that um, yeah, people get a glimpse into something that most people will never go to. I mean, most mm. people won't, but it's interesting to know it exists. And of course, if the opportunity ever comes up, you know, to go there. I mean, and, and yeah. you just mentioned about viewers, you're videotaping. Are you videotaping everything you do? Um, I would say we try to not videotape everything we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't mean everything, don't get me wrong. Chad, but. Chad usually has a, a camera in my face for some odd reason, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm the shy one. He likes to be on video. Usually while she's sleeping. <laughs> I just hover above her with my camera and she'll wake up in the middle of the night and it really freaks her out. <laughs> He's like, what were you dreaming about? <laughs> <laughs> no, our, our, I think our, um, our YouTube videos are a little unique in the sense that we don't really include a lot of ourselves in the video. Um, I try to make the videos more about the ride and more about the scenery and kind of less about our personal lives. Mm. Where I think a lot of people in this genre, it's kind of like it's their travel vlog. And I think the writing is kind of like comes in second or third. We try to put the writing first. Yeah, I don't think anybody wants to know what we had for breakfast anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I totally agree with that. What's What I find interesting about your videos is that you, you do a narrative and I, Rose, you're, I guess you're doing most of the narratives for these things, oh, you, yeah. the narration rather. Mm -hmm. And, um, you sort of narrate what, what's going on and, and where you're going. And it's, it's, it's a bit of a story of, of the experience that you're showing on the film, which is different than, you know, just the, the music in the background that, that, you know, is so common in that type of video. Yeah. I mean, that just happened organically. Um, Again, we were just exploring all of Patagonia that we could get our hands on. And the narration thing, I mean, I never expected to, you know, be good at it first off. I mean, and at first, God, it's awful. I sound like so uh, down and depressed and like, like the video is just like doom and gloom. But um, yeah, I mean, as I've gone along, I, get, I guess I got more uh, comfortable doing it. Um, and I, yeah, it just, it, it has worked. So we're just, we would be traveling this way anyway, but we figure, you know, why not share it with people? Other than sharing, what is the point of the video? Or is there any other point of, of doing the videos and putting them up? I mean, you're putting a lot of work into these. These are nice videos you're doing. Oh, thank you. I mean, really, again, it was, it was just something people had kind of encouraged us to do, or people would always ask us if we had a channel or an Instagram when we were living down in Patagonia, which we didn't. And it wasn't until COVID rolled around that we had absolutely, I was tired of staring at Rose. Rose was tired of staring at me. 
Um, you know, we had watched all the paint dry. Yeah. And, and we had a cat and that was it. Oh yeah. And we were torturing the cat. You know, it was just like that poor cat was just like, leave me alone, uh, get a hobby. And so that's kind of why we started uh, putting the videos together. And after that, it just sort of stuck. Um, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy, um, you know, putting the videos together and it kind of, you know, it, it almost kind of gives a purpose to our mindless wandering. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll look at something on the map and be like, Oh, that might be interesting to film. You know, let's go check that out. Let's go see what that is. That might make some interesting content. Right. Um, and we prefer doing that than just like fabricating trauma. And again, like, uh, showing people what we had for breakfast or where we're sleeping that night. I mean, I personally, I don't find that all that interesting. Yeah, we kind of put out what it is that we would want to watch. Purpose. That's interesting because, you know, we, we've talked about that before as, as well, about um, sort of making a purpose when you go for a ride. One of the things that I've found that on a short ride, let's say you're, you're going out for a day, a couple of days or mm-hmm. something like that. If you don't have a purpose, you can kind of wander aimlessly and if you have a purpose, like you're saying, like if you're going to, you know, your purpose is to videotape, it, it sort of gives you drive. It gives you initiative. You're, you, you have all of a sudden, you're looking for specific things. I think it can really add to an adventure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I mean, we try to look at it through the viewer's eyes a lot of times, um, which is, you know, again, why, you know, and it gives me, um, it gives me that extra motivation not to take the highway. You know, because nobody, nobody wants to watch us sit behind a big rig, breathing, you know, diesel fumes for 20 minutes. That's not interesting. <laughs> those so videos are out there, though. <laughs> they you, are. you can they find are. those if you're interested. And we've suffered in through that, too. But <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the reward in, in the end? You know, I know you're sharing, so I guess you get some reward from, from your feedback there. But I mean, is there any monetary reward in this? Yeah, there. I mean, there's. Yeah, we get a we get a small stipend from YouTube. I mean, we get, we get coupons. We get, yeah. <laughs> we get paid on views, which which isn't much. But I mean, I think honestly, the biggest reward uh, would be the people that we've met through the channel. People will find out, or on Instagram, even people will find out that oh, we just got to Brazil, and I mean, we've made some great friends just you know via our contacts on mm-hmm. social media, people that we've lived with, yeah, you know, people that, you know, we consider friends to this day. That's really, I think for me, um, and again, like I said, I just enjoy the art of crafting the video. But outside of that, I think the people that we've met because of the videos and because of the Instagram, that's been the biggest reward. Yeah, sure. Is there an, a negative side to producing the videos, to having to go through the work of filming these things and editing them and putting them up and staying regular, all of that, that does, does it take away at all from your experience? It can to a degree, just because you feel a responsibility to put the videos out there. And so if, if we're camping, uh, I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into filming that people don't see. It's the actual filming. It's the charging of batteries. It's the pulling over to change batteries. And then managing um, all of the content that you just filmed. Yeah, I mean, you gotta, you've got to organize the content. You've got to do a right... You know, so there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes. And yeah, it can be a little overwhelming at times. Um, there are times where I just... I don't... I'm not in the mood. I just want to pull in somewhere, have a couple beers, and I don't want to have to get on the computer or organize content or charge batteries. But I mean... You know, I think in the long run, it's worth it. Yeah, I actually really love it. And I didn't at first. 
Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. So the, you, you like the whole thing as far as even the social media, because on top of doing the films, you got to do the social media to sort of to push that and keep the interest. And, and with social media, we, we all know that you've, you've got to sort of keep at it and keep filling it with content, more and more content all the time. Yeah, but I think it's it, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, if you look at it as like, gosh, I have to do this, I have to feed the monkey, all that sort of thing, you know, then it's like, yeah, it is going to be drudgery. Um, but again, like I said, I don't know, I've come to like it. Um, and it's weird because it's like, yes, it does, uh, require dedication. Um, but maybe in the end, that's what we needed. And to be honest with you, I mean, Jim, you remember before the days of social media, right? We would travel and we would pack 12 rolls of 35 millimeter film with us, Mm -hmm. you know, and then after the trip, we'd take it to the photo mat or whatever. And that was almost like the, the ability to relive your trip, right? Getting those photos back. And you were so happy to peel through the photos. And And you were careful taking those photos. Exactly. Oh yeah. You couldn't just click away the way you can now on digital. And I mean, even when I was young, even when I would travel, I loved taking photos. I had photo albums and now things like Instagram, they're my digital photo album. Mm -hmm. So I do that as much for me as I do for anybody else. Mm, that's a really good point. And, 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 and in contrast to what it was like, like you said, back in the day when you're using film, you're going to show it to yourself, maybe a couple of other people, but at least this way, other people get to appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I am by no means a professional photographer. I mean, I, I get lucky with composition on occasion. No, he has an actual, like, I think, God-given eye for photography. But yeah, but you look at like a lot of the other content that are very professionally produced photos. And that's not us. That's not us. We're we're a bit more like, you know, point shoot, um, kind of guerrilla warfare when it comes to our photos. But uh, for me, it's just personally satisfying. Oh, the, the photos are, are pretty incredible. I mean, and, and you, I mean, you are traveling in amazing areas. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that certainly helps you. You've got a lot of inspiration there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 hard to take a bad photo out here. Yeah, we're not like in the parking lot of a McDonald's or anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's the big plan of all of this? Because like, we talked about where you're going and everything and, and you know, and you're sort of wandering around and whatnot. But is, is there a big plan that sort of guides the whole thing? Um, kind of the end game for this trip. We planned on spending about 18 months winding our way north through the continent. And um, I'm just speaking for myself now. I would like to end up on the Yucatan Peninsula, somewhere around Playa del Carmen, and kind of realize the three sheets of our two wheels, three sheets. That's our Instagram moniker. And I would like to uh, transition to living on a sailboat and sail around the Caribbean for a couple years before possibly making an Atlantic crossing to continue the journey somewhere else. Rose, did you know about this? (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. No. Um, You know, at first I don't think I was um, interested in living on a boat. Um, But I saw this one documentary that sort of changed my mind. What what was it? It's the... I think it was called The Sailor. It was on Netflix or something like that. Yeah, it was this one older gentleman. And it's just... um, it showed his everyday life uh, living on his sailboat. Um, and I think what it did for me is I think I had a misconception of of what it was. I think I had seen too many of those um, Instagram uh, channels that was just sort of like, 
everyone's in a bikini and they're just doing this and that. And it's just, it didn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I actually, like I said, I want to get uh, my own bike. Um, and I would love to be able to put that bike on the sailboat and then go from port to port, be able to ride, be able to put the bike back on, be able to get on the water again. It's just, there, there's a lot to it that actually appeals to me. Is that the, is that the plan? Chad, when you're saying this, are you saying that put the bike on the, on the boat? Is that it? Yeah, that was when I crossed the Darien Gap the first time back in 2018, I was lucky enough to be able to do it on the stall right before they kind of hung it up. And, you know, there were 20 motorcycles on a 105 foot, you know, steel hold Dutch sailboat sailing to the San Blas Islands. And it was fantastic. And um, fishing in Alaska, I was fishing in Alaska commercially uh, when I was 20, 21, 22. And I really fell in love with living on a boat. Um, It's kind of like a motorcycle. It just gives you access to places that you would not get otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've actually looked into, and there's been a few people that have done it, uh, primarily with like Harley Davidson's. But, you know, at every port, there's a hoist. And you can pull up to a port and hoist a motorcycle on or off a sailboat, assuming the motorcycle's small enough and the sailboat's big enough. And uh, you don't destroy it with a saltwater spray. But I would absolutely love to be able to have a couple smaller bikes strapped down and secured to the um, deck of a sailboat and sail around port to port. uh, And yeah, take the bikes off the boat and go explore. Mm, I've always so liked cool. the idea of that as well. Not not with a sailboat. I was thinking a converted fishing boat. I mean, I actually got to the point where I was looking at them as well because they're at the time they were fairly inexpensive on the West Coast, mm-hmm. and uh, you can get some nice boats. And as you say, you can you can stop anywhere and, and unload. And it's it it could be pretty interesting as far as riding the yeah. bike goes. But you mentioned doing a crossing, and the first thing that came to my mind was what you said there. You, you're going to get, you're going to cross the Atlantic and you're going to come out with a big lump of rust on your, on your <laughs> where the bike used to be. <laughs> but people, people have done it. And I mean, it's just a matter of securing. I, I, I did, um, when I was fishing in Alaska, you know, the inside passage there, cause I believe you used to live on Vancouver Island, right? Yeah. Yeah. Off of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, my second year fishing, um, we had actually driven a VW Westphalia, uh, Westphalia up to Alaska and I had brought the fishing vessels, a 58-foot wooden saner. I brought it from up from Lake Washington through the inside passage to Ketchikan, Alaska. Oh, nice. And um, we had some friends drive the Westphalia and take the um, Alaska Highway Ferry. But on the way back down, we hoisted the Westphalia onto the deck of the wooden saner, strapped it down, and sailed the inside passage with it on the back. Wow. Um, so, I mean, it can be done. Uh, you know, I think it's going to take a little trial and error and figure out how to like hermetically seal the motorcycles mm-hmm. so they don't get destroyed in the crossing, but I'm willing to give it a shot. Yeah. And I guess it depends on, of course, your weather and whatnot. I have no idea what Absolutely. the crossing would be like and how big of a boat you're talking. That'll also make the difference. But, uh, that's, that's quite an adventure. That is all doable for you. Like financially, <laughs> I hate to keep going back to the financially thing, but I know that's what people are thinking and I'm thinking it. So you're going to be able to swing that, buy a boat. Well, and- I, you know, I think, you know, once you're living on a boat, unless you're, unless you're at a very expensive marina uh, and paying for a, like an expensive slip, um, living on a boat is fairly inexpensive. 
and you can get a pretty reliable 38, 40 footer for like 30 or 40 grand. Mm. Um, you know, and if, if you look at, okay, well, what would I spend in rent mm-hmm. over a couple of years? Yeah. You know, 30, 40 grand, you get a boat out of it. And even if it sinks and you have to walk away from it, I mean, it's not the biggest loss in the world. Um, you know, there are BMWs that cost that. <laughs> so <laughs> that's true. We don't want to live in a BMW. Yeah, we can't live that's in a right. BMW. So. <laughs> you know, when you say BMWs that cost that, you're talking motorcycles. You're not talking cars. Yeah, I was talking GS. Yeah. We're always talking motorcycles. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> if it was a car, it'd be a heck of a lot more than that, unless you're yeah, yeah, buying an sure. old one. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, that's that's kind of that's the rough plan, but kind of like what we're doing now, we don't really have a hard and fast plan. We don't really have a route. We just kind of have an idea. So. You'd mentioned that you you lost your retirement really with losing that business that you told us mm-hmm. about. Yeah. So, what are you going to do for retirement? Like, what what does that look like now for you? It's a good question. Uh, what are we going to do for retirement, babe? <laughs> you can work that out right yeah. now. Uh, yeah. Could, yeah. Could you lend us a few dollars? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's no, not going to happen. <laughs> no, that's another thing. We don't ask for people to um, buy us coffee or a gallon of gas or anything like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, we're, we're self-funded hobos. Uh, you're no, not, you're it, not asking to get your vacation funded. No, 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 not, no, at all, no. not at all. Yeah. We think that's a bit presumptuous. Um, you know what, Jim, to be honest with you, the way I look at it is, is that, you know, we're only on this planet a finite amount of time and you can always make more money, but you can never make more time. And, you know, unfortunately, Rose and I have both had to watch friends, um, pass away before they got to realize their retirement. And I don't want to be in that position. Mm-hmm. So I really am just focused on living in the present right now. And, you know, I know that, you know, Rose and I were both professionals. Uh, we both lived a corporate lifestyle for decades. Uh, you know, we've, we've played that game. We can always jump back into that game if need be. Uh, but right now, as far as today's concerned, I'm really only concerned with where we're riding tomorrow. So, I mean, it's probably not the, um, <laughs> it's probably not the most mature way to approach things, but I've, uh, I've always been considered fairly immature. So I'm, I'm pretty much a 47 year old kid at this point. <laughs> so is this a mentality, an attitude, a way of seeing the world that allows you to live this way? Or is it maybe the, the way things have worked out financially for you or, or something like that? I think it's probably a little from column exactly. A and a little from column B. Combination. Um, and like I said, when I was younger, I always, I would work until I had enough money to travel. And then I would travel till I was broke. And then I would work again. So, I mean, I've literally been living this way since I was on my own, since I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, it's not, it's not scary. I know a lot of people and a lot of people always ask me, well, how do you afford to live like this? You know, people assume that we're independently wealthy and I always go through this exercise with people. It's like, okay, well, what are the top five things you spend your money on? And people talk about, well, I've got the mortgage and then I've got the car payment and then I've got insurance and I've got, you know, that, you know, and they run through their list. We don't have any of those. Mm -hmm. I don't, we don't have insurance. I haven't, even when we were living in the United States, I didn't carry insurance. I've always been a cash and carry guy. Um, you know, we don't have a mortgage. We don't have a car payment. We don't have a motorcycle payment. We don't have any of that. And so when you kind of factor all that in, it doesn't really take much to live on the cheap. 
when you're living on a motorcycle. I mean, even down here in South America, we could stay in some fairly, some pretty nice places. And I mean, we can afford a, a, a decent dinner out when you consider that, you know, I can get a really nice steak for the equivalent of three or four dollars US. Mm-hmm. You know, and it just doesn't really cost that much. And yeah. so if you've got a little bit of money in the bank, um, it's pretty easy to stretch it down yeah, here. Yeah, it goes pretty far. And of course, that's part of the reason for sticking around South America, right? I mean, as you as you mentioned, you're going north, and as you get into North America, things are going to change drastically, money wise. Yeah, I when I uh, when I made the run to the Arctic, I think that was a 38 day trip, and I think I camped 30 of the 38 days, mm-hmm. um, just because, as you know, I mean, you know, costs of hotels, motels, whatever in North America are you know a lot more expensive. And of course, the further you go north, the the more expensive they become. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, but even down here, I mean, Chile and Brazil, I mean, they're kind of Uruguay. They're on par with American prices. Yeah, they are. Um, food's a bit cheaper in Brazil, but I mean, in Chile, the prices have just gotten insane. Um, and they're kind of going up worldwide. I mean, prices are going up everywhere, but still, you know, comparatively speaking, it's still a lot cheaper to be able to live and travel in South America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rose, you had mentioned at one point you were tired of trading your time, I guess, for, for, for work, for money. For money. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about um, that? Yeah. I think, um, you know, my parents are very traditional. I grew up in a very uh, strict Catholic household, went to Catholic school. My dad is a Vietnam vet. Um, everything was very, uh, church oriented, um, very strict, very paint by numbers. And I, they did a good job of instilling, I think, a very good uh, work ethic in me. But I kind of saw um, a side of life that I didn't really uh, want for myself. And that is, you know, working to pay for a house and to put your kids through school, the, the car, the, you know, the safety, um, money under the mattress, that sort of thing. Um, not that that's a bad thing, but it's just, I didn't want that to be everything. I didn't want to have to go to bed every Sunday, knowing that Monday morning I was going to have to wake up early again and just go through the same, uh, just cycle. Um, cause I asked myself for what, what's, what's, what's going to happen? What's going to be the end, uh, game for that? And that was basically, you know, well, I hope that at some point when I'm older, I can stop working and then enjoy what it is that I've been saving this whole time. Uh, so I decided to kind of um, take a leap of faith and put my work ethic to use in a different way. I did work. I did, you know, the 5 a.m. Uh, mornings for years and years and years. Uh, and then um, now I do it sort of in a different way. And I, I definitely don't worry. I don't have, um, you know, a huge savings, but that's okay. With that, did you sort of lower your expectations? Because what you're describing there is, a, is the... Com- she lowered her expectations when she got with me. <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of people, I mean, that, that is the thing that for most of us, we think about, you know, working our whole life to save to re- retirement. And it's not a bad mm-hmm. plan for those that it works for. No, But no, when you're no. saying you, you've sort of changed, you did it for a while do you sort of I did no, but to each his own. It's sort of like um, you know, I think you have to just ask yourself the questions like what is important to me? Do I want, you know, diamonds and clothes and a house and sort of, you know, to be I don't know, a housewife doing brunch? 
that just doesn't do it for me. Well, I think, um, and I don't mean to speak for Rose, but I mean, she and I have had this conversation in the past. We, we were living in Los Angeles. And because of the industries that we were in, we both were dealing with people that were very, very monetarily well off. I did work for, you know, movie stars, A-listers. Uh, Rose was also for a time in the, uh, what, movie production? A commercial. Commercial, commercial production. Yeah, commercial production industry. Um, and we saw a lot of people that were very monetarily rich and spiritually poor. And I don't mean spiritually in a, in a religious context. But we saw a lot of people that were just medicated and miserable living in the little four-wall prisons that they had bought for themselves. No, not little, huge. <laughs> <laughs> huge four-wall prisons, some of which I helped build. And I literally, to this day, one of the most you know, well-off people I know uh, owns a multi-million dollar ski cabin in Mammoth. He owns a uh, vineyard in uh, Napa Valley. And he's constantly telling me that I'm living his best life. And I'm homeless on a motorcycle. Do you ever offer um, to swap him? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't actually. You know, he's got, and he's got a garage full of GSs fully kitted out that have hardly any miles on them. Mm. Um, just because he's so caught up in the hamster wheel. Uh, he's a very, very successful businessman and, and, and a person that a lot of people look up to. Such a nice guy too. He's a great guy, but he's just, and I asked him one day, I said, if you could be doing anything you wanted, because you've got enough money to walk away right now. If you could do anything that you want to do, what would it? And he said, I just want to paint. I just want to paint. That's all he wanted to do. But he just couldn't get off the hamster wheel. And so I think just living in Los Angeles and kind of existing in that bubble and seeing people that were just so busy making money and ignored what it was that they really wanted to do with their lives, it was you know, it was a great lesson in what we didn't want. Mm -hmm. Well, they say money won't buy you happiness, but it does make it a lot easier to try and find it. Agreed. <laughs> Makes it easier to afford motorcycle tires as well. <laughs> yes, which we have to replace monthly. <laughs> <laughs> monthly, you're going through a tire. And I'm tire, not exaggerating. Your rear tire. Well, I mean, the rear, yeah. to be fair, if you look at your load and you're riding two up, well, la, 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 la. I can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of that. So, let me ask you though, is there, is there some sort of like a, a big thought? Like, as you're talking about, okay, so maybe eventually you get on a sailboat and you, and you mm -hmm. go over to Europe, wherever, and you, you travel some more. Is there a thought process in the background that you're saying that you guys have maybe have discussed where you're saying eventually, because you did say you could always get back into it again, eventually Will you get back to it? Will you return to a quote unquote normal life? Will you have to at some point? Yeah. I mean, I, I really love, um, and the, I kind of fast forwarded a bit with the, the, the brewery and the restaurant down in Chile that had always kind of been my retirement plan. The idea would always be that once I was old and I was broken and I couldn't really move around anymore and I couldn't travel the way I used to, that I would just pour pints and tell old war stories. Um, and that ended up coming just, you know, by happenstance a lot sooner than I intended. So while I'm not really interested in dipping my toe in, in the South American business world anymore, um, yeah, eventually I would, I love the restaurant business. I loved being a restaurateur. 
Um, I love the brewing business and I can really see us opening a small tap house. I've even thought about opening a tap house and maybe even a small craft brewery that was kind of the centerpiece of a giant motorcycle camp out in the middle of somewhere, who knows where. Could be Colorado, could be Idaho, could be, you know, somewhere where I know the rules of the game. So that kind of limits it to the United States. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, eventually that would really be my passion, what I would like to set up. Again, I haven't told Rose this yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to be on the sailboat. I don't know what he's going to be doing. <laughs> he can meet me, you know, when, he, when he's ready. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's um, I, I guess you have to think of, you know, somewhere down the road. And of course, it's a long way down the road. How, like, what age, what decade are you guys in? without, you know, so I don't have to make you give your age. We're, we're, we're both knocking on 50 at this point. <laughs> okay. So, you know, that's just still, there's a lot of time left. I hope so. Maybe. I hope so. Yeah, of course, that is the deal, isn't it? And, and that's, Rose, I mean, that goes back to what you were saying. You know, the thing is, when you're doing that trade-off, when you're trading mm. off your life for that long-term, you know, checkout where you get to do those great things, and sometimes it works mm-hmm. out fabulously for people, you don't really know if you're going to get there. And that's the the real cruel thing about life. You you do all this trading off, you give away that time because that's all it's we have to give gamble. away. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, I mean, when we went back to the United States, uh, when we fled Chile originally during COVID, uh, we arrived to find out that my father, who's in his eighties, um, but he was in the throes of dementia mm. and, uh, you know, having to deal with something like that. unfortunately it's not the first time I've had to deal with a family member battling dementia. But it's just, it puts things in perspective, Um, you know, and we only have so many healthy years left. Um, And I'm I'm barely, I'm barely even that. I mean, I'm limping around right now, (laughs) but we only have so many healthy years left that we'll actually be able to do this. And I don't want to wait until, you know, financially secure, ready to retire. Maybe at that time, I'm 65, 70, but maybe I'm not getting around as well as I used to. And maybe I can no longer pick the Africa twin up, you know, when I dump it 12 times a day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just want to try to do what I can, where I can. And, you know, I've got plenty of time to sit behind a desk. I've got plenty of time to pour pints from behind the bar. Maybe when I'm not getting around all that great. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned your, your dad, you came back here, you found your dad suffering from dementia. You took him for what you call the final ride. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. He, he had always dreamed about riding a motorcycle cross country and, you know, having a conversation with him one day, I asked him why he never did it. And he just said, I never got around to it. I never had the time. Um, and again, this goes back to trading your time for money. And so I, uh, I went, I rented a Harley at Eagle rider because he's, he has problems getting around. Um, and I took him for a day ride up to Santa Barbara turned out to be like a 10 hour day ride, but uh, a 10 hour lunch stop. Um, and, uh, after that, we kind of both determined that he was, he was ready to go for something a little, a little more. And so, uh, we flew back to Chicago, drove up to Milwaukee. We did the Harley Davidson museum and, uh, I rode him back on route 66 over the course of two weeks on the back of a Harley. And, uh, it was, it was difficult, but it was, I mean, it was one of my best trips ever. And even now, um, kind of in the throes of dementia, he still talks about the trip. Oh. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a great time and I was really just 
blessed to be able to do it with him. What was that like riding him? I mean, you've got, first of all, you're riding with your dad on the back of your bike, which I, mm. I think is a, is a certain dynamic that's interesting, but also having to deal with dementia on the way. You know, the, the thing with dementia is once, you know, if somebody's suffering with dementia, when you remove them from their familiar environment, to an extent, it kind of severs those ties with reality. Um, cause now they don't know where they are. They're in a new environment. They're confused. And yeah, we had some problems. Uh, there were some problems at some hotels in the middle of the night, him trying to wander off or just not knowing where he was and making a lot of noise, you know, on the bike, things were fine. Um, you know, he couldn't go anywhere when we were on the bike and he was just kind of, you know, he was sitting back there enjoying the scenery. Mm -hmm. It was primarily when we would stop for the night and, you know, I, I just have to keep an eye on him. Because that's the fear that he's going to wander off. That that's what happens. Yeah, he would wander off. Or I mean, I woke up in the middle of the night one night, and he was, you know, how they sometimes have adjoining rooms, mm -hmm. um, and the room between the adjoining rooms dead bolted from both sides. Uh, I woke up in the middle of the night one night to to find him like beating his fist on that door because the door was locked and he didn't know why. And unfortunately, yeah. the people in the other room, <laughs> I think it scared the crap out of them. Yeah. But, um, you know, just things like that, things like that, him not knowing where the bathroom was and maybe trying to go, you know, use the closet instead, um, you know, just issues like that. Are you a pretty patient person that you, that you can handle that stuff? No problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was generally, a serious question. <laughs> no, I mean, generally not, but I, I really, it, it was easy. It was easy to be patient with him. Um, and it's like, you know, unfortunately, you know, at both ends of the, of the life spectrum, you know, you get to the point where you're kind of helpless and reliant on other people. And it's just, you know, he's your dad, but you know, it's almost like dealing with a 185 pound toddler. Yeah. Um, you know, and you find patience. It's not, it's not difficult. So the ride went well. I mean, obviously, if he's still talking about it now, I mean, uh, what what a, a fantastic thing to do, possibly at the last point that you'd be able to. And I guess that's why you called it the last ride. Yeah, yeah, it is absolutely. We, I mean, I just got it right at the, right at the end of his like physical and cognitive capabilities to be able to handle something like that. Yeah. So yeah, we were really fortunate. Did you videotape that as well? Yeah, yeah, I put uh, I put a few videos up on YouTube of that. So that's uh, uh we'll, we'll put a link that, to your channel in the show notes for well, those who you. are interested in 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 seeing that. And it's th uh, two wheels, three sheets. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. What exactly does that mean? Two wheel. I mean, I get the two wheels thing. Three sheets. <laughs> three sheets well, to the wheel. Three sheets. That's that's the second part of of the master plan. That is the transition. I don't know if you've seen the logo or not, but it's basically a set of sails uh, over an Africa twin. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's hopefully, uh, us transitioning to living on the sailboat. Oh, so this, this idea of the sailboat thing, this is not just something you've come up with. This is something, this has been part of the plan for, from the word go. All right. Well, yeah, we actually living back in Los Angeles, we took sailing lessons. And so, um, yeah, it's like I said, since working, since fishing in Alaska, I've been absolutely infatuated and we're both scuba divers as well. Right. Um, and so we've got that. So yeah, I just, uh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been kind of rattling around in my head for a while now. Mm. Yeah, well, fishing in Alaska, I mean, you're on a, a boat, a diesel-powered boat. That's a mm -hmm. big difference from a sailboat. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's just, it's just the lifestyle. Yeah. Um, I find docks, especially fishing docks, 
incredibly romantic. Um, just the, the the sound of the boats creaking on the lines and just the salt air and walking the docks and, and just the just that energy, that life. Um, I am just, I'm an absolute sucker for, Mm -hmm. and just living on the salt water. I mean, there's, there's just nothing that beats it. There's nothing that beats it in my opinion. Um, other than riding a motorcycle. Yeah. They're so, they're so different. They're (laughs) so different. I mean, they're, they're, they're the same in that you get that sense of like unlimited freedom, which I really value. Um, but obviously you've got a lot more room on a boat. And Rose can afford to pack more than just one sock, which, <laughs> which is a definite advantage. And obviously you're referring, when you say saltwater, you're, you're referring to living on the boat. Which, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. of course, the, the, the combination of the two is pretty amazing. I, I get what you're saying completely. Is it, all, is it all beautiful colors and wonderful experiences? Because what you've said so far, the both of you, you've made it so... Mm-hmm compelling your lifestyle that you're making me want to walk out the door right now. I mean, is, is there a downside? You know, it depends on what you consider a downside and how you look at things. Um, you know, it's not always easy when, you know, neither of us are very fluent in Spanish. So we've had to, um, I think deal with, um, a lot in, in that sense, but no, I think it 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 is like it comes down to what it is that you think is like a positive or a negative you know it's like we go through our day and there are always going to be challenges no matter where you live what you do any of that sort of thing so it's like you know i i think it is good that um you know you consider it appealing because for us i mean that is how we look at it yeah, and I, I used to say for a long, long time that misery was the only emotion I was in touch with. <laughs> <laughs> you, when, when was that, riding or? Just in, in general. I mean, um, and that was part of motorcycle racing, part of what appealed, because I was a desert racer, and that was part of what appealed to me so much, was it was really just you out there alone. Um, and during nationals and very, very hard terrain, I mean, you drop your bike a thousand times. It's just, it's, but when, but when you are kind of on that edge of life, that's when, for me at least, I really feel connected. I feel alive. Everything else, all the, all the monotonous BS of everyday life, it melts away. Mm-hmm. You're very present. Um, and even now on the motorcycle, when it's raining, uh, when, you're, when your hands are freezing, when you're cold, um, you know, when you're miserable, I mean, that for me, there's something very appealing about that. That's when I really feel alive. I think you, I think you said once something to do with you need to be comfortable being miserable on the bike or you're going to be miserable Friday, something along those lines. Do you remember? Yeah. If you're not comfortable being miserable, you're just going to be miserable. Right. And for sure. And I mean, for, for me again, I, um, you know, Rose and I are also, uh, skydivers, licensed skydivers. And you know, there's just, when you're standing in the door of that plane, that's all there is. Mm -hmm. That's all there is. And yeah, it's scary. Um, but it's being able to, uh, push past that, fear, being able to push through that misery. That's where I really find true satisfaction in life. What is the point of skydiving anyway? I mean, you, <laughs> <laughs> Rose? Uh, you know, you have to experience it. Um, I just, I love it. I don't know. Every time I see video of myself up there in the sky, I have a smile plastered on my face 
And that I have no idea. I, I don't even realize that I'm up there smiling uh, like an idiot. But um, on the ground, I don't do so much of that. And when I'm up there, I just love the way that it feels. It, it's just amazing. And it is scary. You have to be up there and be able to save your own life. But you get about a minute of just being able to fly. And it feels so good. But you're kind of flirting with death, aren't you? I mean, and I know you could you could turn this and say, well, the motorcycle is the same thing or doing anything is the same mm -hmm. thing. But I mean, come on, you're jumping from a plane with a yeah. little bag behind you that's supposed to open that someone else packed. Exactly. And Some, no, we sometimes you pack your own, but yeah, then it's even worse because then it's like, ooh, did I do a good, you know? Well, then you have no one to blame but yourself, of course. That's yeah. why it doesn't open. Well, I mean, does blame really matter if you hit the ground? <laughs> you know, it's, I think, I think, Jim, it's like anything. I mean, a lot of people will, you know, they talk about riding a motorcycle through South America, you know, for it, for woofos or people that are uninformed, you know, they think that's just insanely dangerous. Um, I don't really find it all that dangerous at all. Um, you know, rock climbing, the same thing, skydiving, the same thing. I mean, sure, there is a level of risk, but I mean, we always say statistically, you know, you're more likely to die driving to the drop zone to go skydiving than you are skydiving, statistically speaking. Um, it's not nearly, it's, you know, it's all about mitigating risk and it's not nearly as dangerous as people would make it out to seem. That's true. Well, mitigating risk is, is making sure that you know what you're doing and you have the right equipment and you're doing the best you can mm -hmm. on that. But but actually doing it, I mean, that, that's a certain level of risk. And, and when it comes to danger and, and level of risk, that's a personal thing, you know, because mm -hmm. what is dangerous to one person, you may look at and you th think, well, that's not dangerous to me. That's just, a, I guess it's, a, it's, a, it's our personal level of what we will accept as far as danger go, what we're willing to accept. Yeah, it's it's our comfort zone, you know, and I mean... Uh, you know, we get criticized a lot for the places that we ride on the motorcycle. Mm -hmm. People think that we're being foolish because, you know, we go so far out there where there are no gas stations, and there are no people. But again, for us, it's just, it doesn't seem dangerous at all because mm -hmm. we've prepared ourselves. Yeah. We have the tools, we have the fuel, you know, we have the food. If something goes wrong, I've got a an in-reach if, you know, God forbid, I have to push that SOS button. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I never really feel like we're so far out there that, you know, we're in peril. Well, you're saying um, it doesn't seem dangerous, but you are saying then right afterwards, you're saying that you prepare yourself, you've got your equipment, you think about the fuel, and you've got your in-reach. So really, mm -hmm. from what I'm hearing there is you recognize the level of danger, but you feel you're taking appropriate actions to use the word you just used to mitigate that danger. Sure. It's just like skydiving. You know, we have a buddy system where we check each other's gear. We have a, a device called an AAD, an automatic uh, activation device that will deploy our reserve chute if we're going past a certain speed below a certain altitude. Um, you know, there there are we have equipment and methods by which to mitigate that risk. And it's the same with the motorcycle riding. I mean, if we were just to ride out there with no idea where we were going, no spare fuel and ran out of gas at, you know, 15,000 feet in the Andes where, where there's nobody around, that would be stupid. Mm. That one sock reckless. isn't going to save us. <laughs> We'd <laughs> have to share Rose's sock. <laughs> and that would be reckless, right? I mean, that would be, you know, yeah, a reckless approach. Uh, I think approach. that's a good, yeah. Yeah. That's a good differentiation. Yeah, I think you have to respect what it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same as motorcycle riding. There's, you know, all kinds of people who don't ride motorcycles and don't understand what we do and, mm -hmm. and don't see the joy in it and don't understand the willingness to take the risk, but to take that, to take the risk and be cautious about it, you know, to do what we can. Mm -hmm. We, I know you guys are riding with all your gear on, no matter how hot it gets. 
Yeah, we have mosquito bites, we're sweaty, we're, yeah, but we always have the gear. Mm -hmm. And things can go wrong. I mean, you guys have had other things happen. You got got robbed at one point on, on a beach. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was a perfect example of um, complacency, you know, and we know riding a motorcycle, skydiving, any of this complacency is the enemy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, tell that story. You're, you're in Nicaragua. I was in Nicaragua. Uh, this is back in 2018 uh, before Rose joined me on the trip. And um, I had arrived in well, I mean, Nicaragua, getting in the country, that's a completely different story. Um, the military seized my passport, uh, stranded me in no man's land between, uh, between Nicaragua and Honduras. Uh, that was a nightmare. But once I actually got into the country, um, I kind of let my guard down. And I was actually supposed to meet a couple other adventure riders uh, at a bar in San Juan del Sur. Well, they never made it for whatever reason. I never found out why. And I ended up walking back to my hotel uh, on the beach alone at night after one or two drinks. And I found out after the fact that San Juan del Sur is apparently notorious for this. And apparently, from what I've been told, what happens is the bartenders at these bars along the beach will alert people. Mm -hmm. Somebody's coming. Wow. And... So I was, I was, again, I had let my guard down. I was being complacent. I had a dummy wallet, but it was back in the room. So I had my real wallet on me. I had my cell phone on me. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw somebody approaching me with a shirt wrapped around their face. And my first thought is, why do you have your shirt wrapped around your face? You look ridiculous. <laughs> and the next thing I know, somebody grabbed me from behind, uh, put their arm around my neck and jabbed a knife into my ribs. And then I noticed that the person approaching me also had a knife in their hand. And then a third person started uh, just riding through my pockets and got my wallet. They got my cell phone. And it was really over before I knew it. Um, It happened so quick. And they disappeared in the trees. And uh, being the intoxicated idiot I was, I chased him into the trees. (laughs) Wait a second. You said one or two drinks. I had the feeling these were fair-sized drinks. Well, I mean, they, they pour them pretty stiff in Nicaragua. Right. What can I say? Um, but I mean, the funny thing was, I actually, I, I found them in the trees and we ended up having a bit of a, a business negotiation at that point. And um, I was able to get my credit cards and my driver's license back. Um, they didn't give me the physical wallet or the money that was in the wallet back. And I was trying to negotiate the repurchase of my cell phone. And uh, they got spooked at one point, took off. Well, hang on. How did you do that? Did, did you just sort of appeal to their, their better side and say, look, you're not going to do anything with the credit cards? Yeah, exactly. And I said, look, you know, solo negotiators, solo negotiators. I know this is just business, you know, because if they were going to hurt me, it would have hurt me. Yeah. Um, and these were kids. I mean, these guys were like probably 16, 17, 18. Um, you know, and I knew that at the time, Nicaragua was, you know, they were coming out of the tail end of an attempted coup against Daniel Ortega. There was no tourism in the country. A lot of people were, were suffering. Um, you know, so I, I realized for these guys, it was just business. They didn't really mean me any physical harm. And I just kind of ended up talking to them on that level. And I was to the point of almost having negotiated the purchase of my cell phone back. And I started kind of walking back towards my motel, which I realized later happened to be right next to a remote police station. And the only thing they were concerned about was that I don't go to the police. 
they were willing to sell me back my cell phone as long as I didn't go to the police. Uh, but as soon as they saw which direction I was walking, I think that kind of uh, freaked them out and they took off. Mm. What did you learn from the experience? Don't be complacent. Mm-hmm. Don't be complacent. Um, you know, cause I, I pretty much broke all the rules. I mean, I did everything they tell you not to do. Don't be on the beach at night. Don't be intoxicated. Don't be by yourself. And after a lifetime of walking down dark alleyways, it finally caught up with me. And does it change the way you do things now? Like, I mean, cause it's easy to say, yeah, I was, oh. I learned not to be complacent. That's an easy one. But, but I mean, do you, does it actually change the way you, you do things? You know what, Jim, it was so, it was really odd. I was in a small mountain village in Peru, probably about a month or two after this happened. And like I said, I've, I've just spent my life walking down dark alleyways. I've, I've just never, I don't really carry myself like a victim. So I've never really been, had a problem like that. I've never been confronted. But as I was walking around this, this, this small village, it was nighttime. And I saw this particularly kind of picturesque alleyway. Um, just the way the shadows came off the lights and the architecture and everything. And I started to walk down the alleyway and I stopped dead in my tracks. And I had this, this conscious thought that I don't know what's waiting out there for me. And this was the first time in my life I've ever had that thought. Mm. And it was like, I was immediately flooded with empathy for people that have been victims of violent crime or sexual assault, because I never understood until that exact moment. And it wasn't like a conscious thought. It was just, I stopped dead in my tracks and I turned around and I went back to the room. I did not go down that dark alleyway. Because you've never and felt the fear. Before. I had never felt that. That had never happened to me before. And it was just, yeah. And it, to this day, yeah. I mean, there are, you know, there are dark alleyways that I will not walk down to this day. You, you said there that you never really carry yourself like a victim. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we all have kind of a way of presenting ourselves in public. I mean, there's, there's certain things that you're, you're supposed to do and you're not supposed to do. Um, I had a friend that, um, used to be a thug in Jersey, Jersey city. And they used to sit on the street corner and they used to look for Vic. Um, and they would, if, if they thought they saw Vic, they would walk up and say, Hey, what's up, Vic? And if the response was, I'm not Vic, what are you talking about? Get out of my face. I don't know you. That's not Vic. Vic is a victim. Exactly. That's what they used to call a victim. Mm. But if they say, what's up, Vic? And the person fails to make eye contact, they look the other way. They kind of, you know, hunch over in their posture. That's Vic. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know you know, here in South America, a lot of times crimes are crimes of opportunity and people will rely upon the element of surprise. And I mean, this happened to us in Argentina where uh, we were walking through Bedaloche, which is one of those tourist towns that's known for a lot of property crime. And we happened to walk past a group of young men, probably six or seven kids in their late teens. And as we walked past, I noticed, I noticed that one of them motioned to his friend and kind of then motioned to us with a head, with a head movement. And the friend circled around and started walking behind us. So I stopped dead in my tracks. I turned around, I looked him in the eye and said, mm-hmm. buenos noches. 
And he didn't really know what to do with that. And he just said, Buenos Noches and turned around and walked away. Mm-hmm. So if you eliminate, um, if you eliminate their, that surprise, that element of surprise that they have, if you look them in the eye, if you acknowledge them and you don't carry yourself like a victim, a lot of times, um, you know, you can make it out of situations like that. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you see this in the animal kingdom as well, you know, posturing and where, where mm, posturing true. can mean everything is posturing can, so can deal true. with the situation, diffuse something. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. And I find a lot of times if just like with the kids that I chased into the trees that had robbed me in Nicaragua, if you just talk to people, you know, cause I, you know, I really, people do bad things, but it's very rare that you run into a bad person. Yeah. There are bad people out there, but I think quite often what you're faced with are good people doing bad things in order to survive. Mm. And if you talk to somebody on a human level, um, I find that even like, you know, and I've had this with police, you pull up to police checkpoints sometimes and you can kind of gauge an officer as soon as you pull up to try to, you know, okay, this guy's obviously, you know, this guy might be looking for something. Um, and you can tell based upon their posture and everything. One of the first things I'll always do is I greet them and I, I ask them for street directions. Mm. I'll say, excuse me, is this, is this the correct road or how do I get to this place? And it seems to shift their mentality from somebody that maybe be looking to take advantage of you from somebody that instantly is willing to help. Mm. And I just kind of find, and you can kind of see their facial expression shift and all of a sudden it's like they feel helpful. It's like, oh, no, 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 you're on the road. You know, you need to go this way. And then all of a sudden, you're best friends, you know, as opposed to walking into a situation that might have been adversarial. You can kind of disarm somebody just by talking to them like a human. It's interesting, the difference between what you just described there, because before you're looking sort of adversarial at that person that's coming Mm -hmm. towards you. And in this case, you see someone who has already got that stance and you come at them from a different approach. So Mm -hmm. so it's it's a different approach for a different situation. Are these some of the things that you've learned through travel? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, like I said, I've been traveling like this my entire life. And so, um, yeah, these are just things that you pick up over time, uh, especially in dealing with the police officers. I think as, as motorcyclists, we're less prone to be targeted by police officers than overlanders are in their expensive rigs. That's true. Um, you know, most roadblocks, most federalities, most police checkpoints that I've come up to, all they want to know is where you're from. You know, sometimes they want to know what kind of bike. Sometimes I've even had them take selfies with us. Um, you know, they're, they're usually very happy and very cordial to yeah, see us. So true. Uh, but yeah, on occasion, you do get to a roadblock where you can tell, okay, well, this guy's looking for something. And yeah, I, f- I find if I kind of flip the, squ- the script like that and, you know, just make casual conversation with them, ask them for directions and kind of put them in that mindset of wanting to help. Um, we've n- I've never had a problem with a cop. I've never had a problem with the police checkpoint. Um, I've been very, very fortunate so far. Rose, how, yes. how many trouble or how much trouble do you run into on the trip? How often are you dealing with these type of things that Chad is talking about? You know, I go off on my own um, just for various reasons, just to go uh, pick something up at the store or whatever. Um, and I do it, you know, at night alone. Um, I, I don't, I don't ever feel afraid, but I think because Chad has had uh, firsthand experience, um, he doesn't always think it wise 
So uh, I've kind of learned sort of to communicate with him where I'm going so that at least he knows, like if I've, I've taken too long, um, he knows where I was going to go and he can go and, you know, see what's going on. Uh, we don't always have cell phone coverage, so it's not like he can just call me or text me or anything like that. But, um, again, (laughs) I'm so small. Um, but what I do to make myself feel, I, I guess it's like the short man syndrome. Um, I wear my moto gear like all the time because it kind of like gives me a different um look you know it's like my jacket has the armor my you know i have like the the boots and everything and i'll walk around doing my shopping in um my moto gear Mm. and i think more than anything like people just think it's weird and they probably don't want to sort of like um have anything to do with me because i don't know i think it just is off-putting um but yeah I, i i go off and i do my own thing uh like you, should all see, the time. you should see her eat dinner with her motorcycle helmet on. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I use a funnel. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's an interesting approach. And, that, and as you describe it, that makes sense to me. That will throw people off. They don't know how to take you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, it's like I'm not in normal clothes even as a tourist, you know. So it's not like I'm in, you know, jeans and a T-shirt or anything. And I just look like I'm trying to shop and I have all this cash and all that sort of stuff. It's like, I, I kind of do, like you said, in terms of the animal kingdom, I do put out there, um, like I puff up my chest and I just go and do my thing. Mm -hmm. I've, I've never had any trouble. I don't know. It's interesting how body language does play such a role for us humans, even though I think we're, we're kind of unaware of it a lot of times. I mean, in a way you're aware of it, but in a way you're not. You know, and like you're saying, you know, you puff up your chest and you, and you, you have a, probably some sort of aggressive stance or at least a, yeah. a look, you know, where people look at you and think, if I'm going to hassle somebody, I'm not going to waste my time hassling her, you know, because yeah. of the, I mean, because the you stance. know, I, I, uh, I do that in the mirror all the time before I head out, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but well, you I, are breaking I, the cardinal rules, really. I mean, I mean, going out at night. Come on, Rose. Like that, that, that's like the that's got to be the cardinal rule. A night by yourself. And, yeah, and, I mean, and, again, I hope it never uh, bites me in the butt. But I just I don't have um, I don't have reservation. I mean, I have to go out and do things, and it's sort of um, I don't know. For me, you know, I don't want to have to be fearful of doing my thing in a new place. You know, it's like I could live in L.A. and go out and go, go to the market and something would happen to me there. It's sort of like, you know, I mean, I'm not being reckless, but I am living my life, you know, as I should. And I think that's probably part of it too, because we did live in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, when you talk about, well, is that something you picked up from your travels? It's just probably something we picked up from living in Los Angeles. That's just how you move through the room. Mm. Right. And, you know, that's one of the things you always want to do. You always want to walk like you're, you've got a purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, know, you don't want to be kind of just wandering around the streets and looking up at the buildings and, you know, kind of <laughs> wandering around aimlessly because then, yeah, you, you know, it's going to be easy to pick you out. Yeah. And one of the things that, all, I mean, I have zero, zero uh, sense of direction. I am lost I can all confirm this. the time. I mean, I could be just in a market and I just, I get turned around. I have no clue. Um, but in that I've developed this sort of thing where it's like, I don't look like I'm lost, but I am. <laughs> you know, you can get Plain tiny awesome. little compasses to, to put in your pocket. That might be handy for you. I, God, 
you're going to have to teach me how to read said compass. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good thing with the compass is it always points to north or maybe south. You know, it, it depends yeah, on which okay, way you look so. at it. But I mean, it's so at least when you start out, if you know the road you're going on is heading east, you know, you come out and you head the opposite direction to go back. It's, oh, bless you. Yeah. No. I, <laughs> I, She's going to have to learn that eventually if we move on to a boat. <laughs> yes, that's true. But overall, so so what do you guys have as far as a view of, of the world from what you've seen? Is it a good place? Is is it a bad place? I mean, is it a is maybe a bad place where you have to just be careful and you can find the good in it? Where, where does it lie? I think fundamentally, people are all the same, no matter where you go. Exactly. I mean, we all kind of have, we all view life through, our social lenses, um, you know, kind of the social mores that we grew up with. But once you kind of strip all of that back, people are fundamentally good and we're fundamentally all the same. We all want the same things in life. Um, you know, for the most part, we all love our children. We all love good food. We all love to laugh. We all love sex. I mean, there's, a, there's these things that kind of bind us together as humans. And once you get past like the superficial BS of our upbringings um, and you get down to just like the essence of a person, we're all the same. And I think fundamentally, yes, people are good. Yeah, there are bad people out there. Absolutely. But I, I really think they're fewer and farther between than most people believe. Yeah. And no matter where we go, that's someone's home. So... You know, if you're uncomfortable there for whatever reason, it's sort of like, you know, that's somebody's every day. You know, that's where they have their family. That's where they make their money. And so it's just it has been proven time and time again, to Chad's point, um, that we we really are just looking for the same thing. You know, we all want to be happy. We want to feel fulfilled. We want to make a little bit of money. And, you know, there's so much more that we have in common than you maybe think. What is it that, that you guys know about life now that you didn't know before you started riding around like this, that you learned through motorcycle travel? Um, I think just with life in general, I mean, there are no, the only rules in life are the ones that we impose upon ourselves. You know, and that, you know, obviously there's laws in the society that you grew up in. I mean, if, if you know, there's crime and there's punishment. But in terms of how somebody chooses to live their life, you know, there aren't any hard and fast rules. I mean, the, 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 the paradigm that we grew up with in, in Western culture is, you know, the 40 or the 60 hour work week, um, you know, go to college, get the degree, you get the career, you get the gold watch, you retire, you die. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people just kind of jump headlong into that because that's what they're supposed to do. Um, you know, a lot of people just live their life based upon the expectations of society, but there is a different way to live. Um, and there are people all over the world doing it. But when you kind of live inside of a bubble, you know, it just seems like that's all there is, you know, is, is what exists inside that bubble. You really have to get beyond that bubble. You have to go travel. You have to go, you know, experience different cultures talk to different people to realize, well, there's different ways to do this thing. There's different ways to do this thing called life. And it can be really hard to strip away that codex 
that we're, we're programmed with as children. It can be very difficult to, to kind of break through that wall. But I think it's really important for people to get out there and see that there's another way to live. And really, the only rules that you have to live by are your rules. Rose, how about you? I think I would take it uh, more on a personal level. Um, you know, Chad and I have a, re- a relationship, right? And so our relationship now is different because before, you know, we had like a typical life. You know, we had our work. We had to maintain a household. We had like the everyday, um, I guess, it's, it wasn't sedentary, but it's almost like we were living just for the weekends. Uh, right now, we spend so much time together on the motorcycle working as an actual team. Um, and when we do have issues with each other, which is just like normal, natural, and it happens a lot, what has changed for me is that I'm so much more able now to let go of little things or even big things. It's almost like we don't have time to hold grudges or at least I, I speaking mm. for myself anyway. Um, I, I don't have a lot of time to maybe create problems, I think, for us because I'm actually, we, we are actually doing something that requires both of us to work together. Um, and I think it's just gotten rid of a lot of the fluff and a lot of the things that I think were just maybe not healthy in our relationship. And it's made me actually better at being a partner. And will you take that back with you if, if eventually you end up going back and sort of going back to your old life? Is that something that will stay with you? For the way you do everything? I would hope everything? so. I mean, I hope that everything that I've kind of accumulated as I've gone along and had life experience, I hope I, you know, bring that along. And, and like every morning that I wake up, you know, I really do have just so much to be grateful for. And I actually do a gratitude list, um, 10 things that I'm grateful for. Uh, and I think it just, oh man, it, it changes everything. Again, like I said, it's perspective. You know, I could think of a lot of things that are difficult, uncomfortable, you know, things that maybe I should be fearful of or fret about for the future. But I choose to sort of uh, make sure that I know what it is that I have so I don't focus on what it is I don't have. Rose, Chad, thank you so much. I've just had a great time talking to you. Jim, thank you for having us on. I appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. I was speaking with Rose Padilla and Chad Horton on the side of the road somewhere, so to speak, in Santa Cruz, Bolivia, en route to, well, who knows where. We have some interesting photos of Rose and Chad on their adventures, as well as some links uh, like to their YouTube channel, Two Wheels, Three Sheets, all in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio.
wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, of course, thank you very much for listening. Hey, there's some ways you can help us out if you enjoy what you're hearing here that we do every week. You could help out by supporting the show, adventureriderradio.com, click on support. You could also help by sharing it to others on social media so that other people can find the show. And you could also help by giving us a review wherever you find podcasts. Of course, I'm looking for a five-star review. I hope I'm not asking too much. If you can, we would really appreciate it. Adventureriderradio.com is the website. We have show notes there on every single episode that we do. It's quite an extensive website. We've sorted out rider skills to a separate portion. There's a lot of things on it. Anyway, drop by and have a look if you haven't already. And certainly drop by and check out the show notes because we've got those photos of Chad and Rose in the show notes for this episode. Well, it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Wait, 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 wait. I forgot one other thing I should just mention to you. We have another show, if you're not familiar with it. We have another show called Adventure Rider Radio Raw. It comes out once a month. It comes out on the 21st of every month. It's a very popular show as well. It's also on the website, but you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. Anyway, that's it. Hi, this is Justin Kleider, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.